Bonjour. Hello. Welcome to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. I'm your host, Cole Primo. And I'm your other host, Leah Lem. This week, we are bringing you a conversation from season two of Native Lights, and we think you'll really enjoy it. Yes, this conversation was recorded before the pandemic in early 2020. And, you know, we've talked to so many great people before this radio show began in November. And you can check out all those conversations on our podcast feed. Just search for Native Lights in your favorite podcast app. Now... Enjoy our talk with Dr. Arnie Vinio. Boujou, hello. Welcome to Native Lights, the podcast where Indigenous voices shine. I'm your host, Leah Lem. And I'm your other host, Cole Primo. Welcome to the show. How's it going, Cole? It's going great. Do a little India re. That's right. So we have a great show today. Yeah. Today we're talking with respected elder and physician, Dr. Arnie Vinio. He's a member of the Malax Band of Ojibwe and a revered and celebrated elder. Woo. Yeah. Um, have you met him or I actually, known about his work? You know, I actually haven't met him. I've seen him like all over Facebook and all of that stuff. So I've followed him a bit, but I don't think I've actually shaken hands with him. Nor have I, but I'm looking very much forward to what he's got to say. Totally. So lucky for us, producer Melissa Townsend is with us mm-hmm. and she talked with him for this show. So welcome, Melissa Townsend. Welcome. Hello. So you talked with Dr. Arnie Vinio. Yeah, he's a family doctor at the Fond du Lac Tribal Clinic, and uh, he uses his medical knowledge in a lot of different ways. He's involved in Ojibwe language camps and other community events. He has a regular segment on community radio and public television. In fact, here's a little bit of one of the episodes he did for Native Report on PBS. Uh, This is Dr. Vineo, Arnie Vineo, MD. This is a segment where he is actually lying in a hospital bed in a gown because his heart was acting up. And he's looking in the camera and he describes atrial fibrillation. And my left arm didn't feel good. Um, And it didn't hurt. I didn't have any chest pain, but maybe a little bit shorter breath, but apprehensive, a little bit of a headache right up in here. He knows Native men don't go to the doctor when they're ill. And this is one of the ways he's trying to encourage Native men to get the medical help they need when they need it. Yeah, you hear stories about men ignoring their health and not finding out till later that something very serious is happening. But 
I mean, sometimes it's just like if you go to the doctor enough, you go thinking something's wrong and they just tell you nothing's wrong. That can be discouraging as well, especially because you're paying money every time you go. And it's just, it's like, why would I pay money for them to continue to say that, you know, it's fine. I don't see anything wrong. It's all in your head. Yeah. Yeah. Am I just being super paranoid or what? I mean, it <laughs> feels like I'm not feeling too well, but I don't know. Right. I get that too. Yeah. Well, and the thing is like, you know, you don't want to find out something's like super wrong, right? Mm. Like nobody wants that news, but you want to know what's wrong if you feel bad. Yeah, mm. definitely. Yeah. And Dr. Viney was really passionate about trying to keep people engaged in the medical system and like, hey, go when you need it. So how did Dr. Arnie Vanyo become Dr. Arnie Vanyo? Like when did he discover his purpose? It was kind of late in life, actually. He said there were always people who encouraged and supported him. Um, in his dreams to do something different. But there were also people who were really discouraging and ridiculed him. He talked about one example of that when we sat down together. My Ojibwe grandmother, and I don't know why, she never said anything nice to me. And when I was making the decision to quit my job in the fire department and go to medical school, I wanted my grandmother's blessing for that. She was in the process of dying from cirrhosis of the liver from alcohol. And I went to go visit her in the hospital and she was quiet and didn't talk and she was just kind of breathing real sporadically. And I leaned in and I said, Grandma, it's Arnie. I'm going to quit my job on the fire department and I'm going to go back to college and I'm going to go to medical school and be a doctor. And then she kind of opened her eyes a little bit and, and, you know, motioned me in closer and I got closer to her so she could whisper into my ear. And then I didn't know if I should tell people the story. And she said, you act like you're white. And that was a hurtful thing to say, yeah. you know? Ouch. Yeah. And it, and it still is an ouch thing. The fact that she's like dying and she takes this energy from herself just to tell him something like that. It's just it's painful mm-hmm. to hear for sure. Mm-hmm. Embracing one thing doesn't mean rejecting your native or your Ojibwe heritage. Those don't equate. So how do we move forward and embrace the good things about practicing medicine um, while also honoring your heritage? Like, cause I think they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah, I mean, what stands out to me about that was the idea that, like, what is whiteness? And not just with his grandma, but this concept of whiteness, you know. And you hear it in communities of color where it's like, oh, you're talking white if you're talking, you know, quote unquote, proper, right? Mm -hmm. So this idea that whiteness is this professional upper middle class-ness. Yeah, is there this, like, inherent feeling of superiority if you embrace something that's stereotypically or typically white. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And can you have both? Can you be upwardly mobile and go for this very prestigious job? Being a physician is a big deal. And still be connected to community and family and culture, tradition. Mm -hmm. In a lot of different communities, particularly around people who grew up poor and working class, we have these aspirations to do something different, something that's upwardly mobile, And there are people who discourage you, you know, 
And I've heard people call that crabs in a bucket. Yeah. Basically, it's just this idea of not wanting somebody else to have something that you can't have. You know, like you don't want your fellow crab, I guess you could say, <laughs> getting out of the bucket and leaving. And so you just kind of hold them back. It's a basic idea. Yeah. And, you know, when I hear that and I've heard that before, like it sounds really disparaging about the community of people in the bucket. Right. But our friend George Strong at the Boys War Band of Ojibwe told me a while back about how he sees that quite a bit differently. Awesome. Um, so here's here's him on that. The way I always heard it told when I was a, you know, a young person was that so somebody was excelling, trying to do something that was good or some type of achievement, something personal. It was always viewed from the group, let's say, that was in the bucket that they were trying to leave and uh, be something different. They would tease us and ridicule us and try to bring us down. But the main thing was that they were jealous and that they were, they were trying to pull that person down because of jealousy. But I, I really don't see it that way. The way I always saw it was that they were going to miss that individual, you know, because they were part of a group at one time. And now that one is trying to get out of there. And I always thought about that that whole story like it was, um, you know, that individual was trying to be themselves and they were trying to achieve or at least see what was on the other side of that bucket. I think it's it's pretty crafty and pretty resourceful if somebody's able to achieve something like that because nobody ever explained what was on the other side of that bucket. <laughs> I'm always hopeful that they'll make it and that they'll get up there and they'll aspire to explore and do whatever it is that they were intended to do. And I think that's that's there's just a little bit of magic in that. And if that individual's on top, maybe someday they'll come back and, you know, lend a hand down to pull others out of there too. And that's the other part of the story that I, I rarely hear people talking about. And I think it's just something that needs to be said. Oh, wow. Oh, well, indeed. It's like a fear of your family going off and doing these more prestigious, quote unquote, things. And it's not really like prestigious, right? Yeah. Because they're like, you know, prestigious things in Native communities too, right? Um, but just like, I don't know, feather in your cap, call it macaroni. Uh, <laughs> uh, in more of the dominant white culture. One elder I talked to talked about upward mobility as an assimilation tool. So even though he heard this message, he's still motivated to become a doctor. So he always knew that being a doctor was going to be his purpose? You know, no, not at all. He says he always loved books. He was a big reader, but he wasn't a good student. He uh, did graduate from high school, and then he was a mechanic. He did car body work. He was a heavy equipment operator, uh, and he really took pride in all of that. You know, he has a really solid work ethic. If you bury a water main 12 feet deep, you know, there's a feeling of satisfaction that comes with that because you can see that you did that and you compacted the ground back on top of it and they can build a parking lot and it won't settle where you were. So he's been doing this work for a while and he feels pretty good about it. But there have always been people in his life who wanted him to do more. It's like the people George Strong talked about where they are encouraging you to find your way. I was uh, drinking and smoking marijuana. And I was parked on the side road with my old red 68 GMC pickup with a big dent in the fender. And I had the window open and Dick Paradise was a counselor at a boys camp and he knew who I was. And he stuck his head in the window 
And he said, what in the hell are you doing? And scared the heck out of me at that moment. But I also knew that he wasn't saying, what are you doing sitting in your pickup, drinking and smoking pot? You know, he was saying, what are you doing with your life? And I got it. So how did he get into medicine? Well, one day he's working in the body shop and there's a huge car crash in the intersection in the front of the shop. He describes the scene. And I ran out there and there were logs all over the road and there was a pickup and she, the windshield was broken out of it. And I mean, the engine was just the whole front of it was, the whole truck was all ripped up. And she was laying on all this broken glass in a seat and there was blood everywhere. And I climbed in there and her mouth was full of blood. And um, I just kind of scooped that out and, and um, she couldn't move her head. She couldn't move her neck. And I just held her still and until the ambulance came and just kept talking to her to just try to keep her calm. And um, when the ambulance finally came, they slid a big plastic board underneath her under on the seat and rolled her over a little bit and tied her head down so um, so her neck couldn't move. And when she when they pulled her out of the truck, they had to kind of tip her a little bit, and then she could see all that destruction from the truck and you could hear the the hissing of those big tires on that truck going flat and um and they leaned her over and she saw all that and then she just looked at me and she just whispered thank you so then he ends up in medical school yeah in the late 80s he becomes a paramedic with the virginia minnesota fire department and he loves it. He's in the back of an ambulance driving people who are in crisis to the hospital. And Virginia, Minnesota is really rural area. And a lot of these folks are pretty low income. And a lot of them are native folks. So he feels like he's in his community helping people. Um, finally, we brought in um, this Ojibwe woman. And um, her blood sugar was sky high. And and she wasn't thinking right. And we brought her into the emergency room and the emergency room doctor saw her and rolled his eyes and right in front of me said, it's just a goddamn drunk Indian woman. And that's what made me want to go to medical school. Seriously. What aggravates me is this indifference or annoyance with people that who are in pain and suffering, who are in a bad place. All people have those problems. There's people all around the world that have these problems. It's just better to understand why this is happening. And I, I like that it pushed Dr. Vainio to do something and to get into that system, to help people who are struggling. Right. It's like a giant bummer, but he did something with it. Definitely. Yeah. So he makes this decision in that moment to go to medical school. But if he's going to do that, he has to quit his job at the fire department. Now, the person with the most to lose in this situation is Arnie's mom. They had just gotten their first house with indoor plumbing, and he's making the mortgage payments. So if he wants to go to medical school, he's going to have to move out, and he can't pay those mortgage payments anymore. Mm. So he's going to be a professional in a white coat and a necktie, right? And those folks didn't always interact with his family and his community so well. Anytime we interacted with somebody that was wearing a necktie, she was going to get something taken away from her. And that was just a fact. You know, a bank for her to try to get money, you know, she didn't qualify for anything. And so her rates were always going to be high, and it was always somebody smiling, but something bad was about to happen. 
So he goes to talk with his mom about it. And she has a choice here. She can support him or she can discourage him. I mean, just encountering this decision where your housing situation is in question. I mean, that's got to be tough. But it's his mother. I'm I'm assuming that she's going to go along with it. Yeah, I want to hope for the best. I'm going to remain positive. You know, my mom didn't understand what sort of obligation medical school was. Nobody knew. I didn't know. But she knew it was important, and she said, we'll figure it out somehow. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) We'll figure it out. Oh, that's nice. That's a good response. (laughs) I quit my job as a firefighter, the best job anybody in my family, all cumulative together, had ever had, and um, left to go chasing rainbows and, and go to medical school. I know growing up, we were working class. I mean, we're pretty privileged, but we all went to college, right? Mm -hmm. Um, For various lengths of time. But yeah, encouragement has played a big role, you know, because if people are always trying to hold you back, at some point, it's just like, just want to give up. Yeah. I think around nine or 10, I heard Jimi Hendrix's song and I was like, wow, I really want to play Purple Haze and, (laughs) and I want to play guitar. And that was encouraged by both my dad and mom and we got like a five dollar guitar at a garage sale and you know dad would drive me to lessons my mom would encourage me to keep playing chords and things like that when i really didn't want to Mm -hmm. so yeah it's just stuff like that where the encouragement helps i would say you're every bit as good as Jimi hendrix oh come on now oh even that we digress. Voice. We digress. <laughs> you know what? My daughter was, she's eight now, but when she was four, you'd ask her what she wanted to be when she grew up, and she'd say a rainbow cheetah. Heck oh, that's, yeah. That's sweet. I want her to achieve this. How I may know. I encourage her to do this? <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> Dad always had these like stacks of National Geographic magazines. Do you remember that, Cole? Yep. Yeah. And I would just like peruse them and be like, what? This stuff exists out there in the world. That's awesome. You know, and, you know, never really seeing anything like that. But I think in one of those magazines, there was some sort of like robotics competition. I was like, that looks cool. And like the college was MIT. And I was like, I want to go there because they do this. And then, you know, when I got into high school, I realized, oh, snap, this school is like, really tough to get into. So I was like, well, never mind. That's all right. But I was in Indian ed, right, all through school. And we had our teacher who told me about this summer program at the Native American Preparatory School in Santa Fe. And I went to it. You know, it was after my sophomore year. We road trip down there, mom, me, and one one of our cousins Mm -hmm. (laughs) road trip down there and dumped me off (laughs) at this pretty neat place and I spent a week just learning how to like apply to colleges but what was really neat was that they had college representatives there including MIT and like a bunch of other schools anyway so they're like yeah you know you're the kind of student that we're looking for right and I was like what nah no way right whatever but this one woman from MIT really like encouraged me and so it was like all these people mm-hmm. along the way that were like hey you can do this and show me opportunities that were out there and you went to MIT yeah I made it there yeah I'll always be grateful for that because it kind of put me on that path to see a bit more of the world that I had wanted to see in those yeah. National Geographic magazines 
Did you ever feel like there was anybody afraid that you would go off and stay in Boston? Or that they were going to lose you? Not really. Mm. I know, like, there were other instances of where I actually lost friends mm. um, because of doing well and focusing on school. So I tended to equate losing friends with achieving in academics. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm. Cool. You mentioned, you know, you had this similar thing of like a friend group that maybe wasn't going to help you get what you wanted or something. Yeah. I mean, in high school, there was a certain friend group that maybe were into more drug cigarettes. They're smoking doobies and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Indian education and some counselors in high school, they recommended that I sign up for this Emma Bowen Foundation, which is a group that helps get minority interest in media. And so uh, that helped me get into the industry and the job that I'm in now, which is at WCCO. I feel like I didn't have many people like trying to pull me back, but I can definitely see like certain groups of people in high school that me going on to academics, like they weren't having it. And eventually the distance grows between you and other people who maybe don't have that ambition. You are listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. I'm your host, Cole Primo. And I'm your other host, Leah Lem. Now, let's get back to producer Melissa Townsend and Dr. Arnie Vainio. Just before the first semester at the University of Minnesota in Duluth, Arnie Vainio goes to register for classes. And at that time, you had to go to this big gym and get in line to sign up for the classes that you wanted. So there's a line for each class. And when that class fills up, you go and you walk into a different line for a different class. And so Dr. Vainio really had not much of a clue about how this all worked. Um, and here's what he says about it. So I ended up standing in these lines and didn't get in any classes. And Jay Newcomb was an instructor in some Indian studies classes at UMD, and I didn't know him, but he was watching me, and I had this green duffel bag that somebody that went to Vietnam gave me. And everything I owned was in that duffel bag, and I was dragging that thing around in the gym and too shy to ask any questions. And Jay watched me for a long time, and finally he came and got me, and he said, why don't you sign up for all my classes and in the first week, people will drop out of other classes and you can move into the classes that you want, which was so cool and so nice of him. And then he saw that big green duffel bag and he said, where are you staying? And I had to admit that he didn't have a place to stay yet. And he said, well, why don't you come and stay with me and my family for a couple of weeks and you can move in. I stayed with him and his family for two years. Two years? I mean, Aww. that's... That's awesome. Awesome, yeah. The amount of generosity that involved, in, you know, bringing in somebody you just basically met, kind of, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So now he's living with Jay Newcomb, and he's a first-generation college student, and he barely has a clue what's going on, right? And it makes me think again about what George Strong said, um, that it takes courage to try something new, because no one's ever told you how to do it people away from their families and thrown into something that's just so rigorous and so hard. And it is lonely at times. And and it's so hard that if you get behind, it's, it's hard to make that back up. And on top of the sheer difficulty and loneliness, he doesn't totally know all that he's gotten himself into. 
And it's like everybody in the class was talking about doing rotations and whatever. And I had no idea what a rotation even was. And I couldn't ask because I didn't want anybody to know that I was that ignorant about what was coming. And I didn't want anybody to feel that my people were ignorant. And like a lot of other first-generation students, his family can't really help him figure it out. My cousins asked me, why don't I get a real job? And, and other people kind of had that impression too. You know, they thought it was just bookworm stuff. Why doesn't he get a real job? He'll get there. <laughs> that makes sense though, because you're studying and a student, sometimes you just see like they're not making money. Yeah, it's hard to see that end result. It's an investment. Yeah. So. Yeah, but then there comes this point where he has this choice of whether he's going to leave Minnesota and northern Minnesota uh, and be a doctor somewhere else. And that's what they say sometimes, right? It's like, oh, you're going to go become a big shot and take off and and leave your community behind. Um, But he doesn't want to leave northern Minnesota. But he does have a super sweet offer from the Indian Health Board in Seattle, Washington. They fly him out to Seattle, all expenses paid, and show him around. They have brunch in the Space Needle. They're really trying to get him to Seattle. I want to (laughs) go. Dine and dine. So he's thinking it over. And in the meantime, this very smart and powerful Ojibwe elder from Grand Portage hears about his offer from Seattle. And here's what she does. So Ruth Myers worked at UMD at the University of Minnesota, and she would hold everybody's feet to the fire and you couldn't beat around the bush with her. She's like, you're, you're coming back and you're working for your people. And she said it to everybody, no matter what. And she said, I want you to promise that you're going to come back here and work for your people. And I said, Ruth, I'm from here. And she said, that's not good enough. I want you to promise me you're going to come back here and work for your people. I said, Ruth, my mother is here. She said, that's not good enough. I want you to promise me you're going to come back and work for your people. I said, Ruth, there's nothing in Seattle. This is where I'm from. She said, that's not good enough. I want you to promise to come back here and work for your people. And I said, Ruth, I promise. Right on. That's not good enough. I love that persistence. I love it. Mm-hmm. And the things that Ruth Myers makes him promise rings in his ears as he heads off to Seattle. And then when he's done with his residency there, he comes back to northern Minnesota. And he's been here for 25 years. So now Dr. Vineo has his prescription pad, his stethoscope, his white coat and tie. How does he balance, like, being humble and also kind of, you know, being the boss. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely an authority, right? And he says in the beginning, you know, it was really kind of tricky. He had a hard time identifying as a doctor. He thought it might be a little too uppity. Um, even as a resident, then I, I felt it was too uppity to call another physician and say, this is Dr. Vineo. So I would call the cardiologist in Seattle and say, this is Arnie Vineo and he needed to talk to Dr. Christensen. He still hasn't called me back. You know, and if I called and said, this is Dr. Vineo, the, the receptionist was like, just wait right on the line. I will get him for you. But that wore off really quickly. <laughs> now you're like, I am Dr. Vineo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I never, I never pull that one. So he's now found a way to comfortably be Doctor Arnie Vineo, family physician, and a deeply committed member of his tribal community. And he feels like this was always his path. When I went to medical school, uh, 
but I thought all my traditions would get scienced right out of me. And medical school is like a hay baler and it just takes all this raw stuff and just pounds it and cuts it and pounds it into a big rectangular thing that weighs 80 pounds at the end and they all look the same. And I thought that's what I was going to come out at the other end and, and actually found that my traditions were stronger when I came out. That's really cool. You know, he did, in fact, come back and help. Yeah. Like, I always knew as I finally decided on my major in college, like I went into economics, as I was developing that idea, I was like, you know, what could I do that could be useful for my tribe? Mm -hmm. You know, because we have casinos and stuff like that. Like, maybe there is a way that I could help in that way. Um, My story hasn't taken me in that direction, but I still felt pulled to come back kind of like Dr. Vinio, I was, you know, really compelled to come back. And with me, at the very least, I wanted to bring that perspective, the native perspective to like a major news corporation that I was working at. That was one of my, you know, obligations I felt, I think, when that perspective is very lacking. So mm. with Dr. Vinio, it's it's really great to see this this whole situation play out. But at the same time, it also makes me a little sad because I feel like there's other people who were successfully discouraged. Mm. But at the same time, I like hearing this case where it actually happened in a positive way. Absolutely. And that brings us back to why we're sharing these stories is sharing how people use their gifts to help the community. You know, when I talked last season about talking to Uncle Amik um, about feeling really lost and how to go forward. And he just said, well, what are you good at? What do you like to do? And, you know, go do that. Right. So, you know, honoring that in ourselves is the native way or is, you know, our particular cultural way. Thank you to Dr. Arnie Vainio for sharing his experiences. What an incredible story. Thanks to Melissa Townsend, producer Melissa Townsend, for bringing us the incredible story of Dr. Arnie Vainio. That was really great. It's a pleasure. And thank you for joining us today for this episode of Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. We want to thank our engineer, Justice Sanchez, program manager, Aaron Warhol, and producers, Melissa Townsend and Lori Stern. Music by Cole Primo. See you next time. I'm Cole Primo. And I'm Leah Lem. Gigawabamin. Gigawabamin, everybody. Bye. You've been listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine, produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.